I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. If this is your first time here in the show, it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are, and we want you to be a part of this show. Every educator we have on the podcast, whether it's a teacher, a coach, or professor, is nominated by the people who listen. So please tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the people in your community who deserve a spotlight. Email us with your nominations at teacherslounge at niu.edu. That's teacherslounge at niu.edu. This week on the show is David Gray. He's a social studies teacher at Logan Junior High in Princeton, Illinois. And he and his students have been doing a project called The Four Freedoms and Beyond. It's based on President Franklin Roosevelt's 1941 State of the Union address just before the U.S. entered World War II. And Roosevelt laid out the country's stance highlighted by the four freedoms, which are freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from wants, and freedom from fear. And at the time, that speech and those freedoms inspired Norman Rockwell to create four paintings based on each of those four freedoms. And Gray's students also illustrated their modern interpretations of the freedoms. And they had discussions about them and even some community events in Princeton earlier this year. And he says in the classroom, it was especially fascinating to hear how his students felt that we've lived up to the ideals expressed in those freedoms from 80 years ago. I think in a lot of ways, they felt like we we come up short, especially with the freedom from fear. I mean, school shootings did become part of our conversations. The idea that we're doing, you know, every year we're doing lockdown drills and talking about, well, what if somebody comes in trying to harm? We talk about the four freedoms and beyond, teaching middle school in his hometown with the teachers who inspired him and so much more. But before we jump into our conversation with David, we have a few more education stories we think you should know about. The Illinois Assessment of Readiness test scores came out a while back, and the scores are down 7.5% in reading from pre-pandemic levels, and math scores have dipped 6% since 2019. And we want to tell you a little bit more about a $25 million tutoring initiative that Illinois education leaders hope can get students back up to speed. Cameron Swan is tutoring two fifth graders at the Hiawatha School District, about a half hour south of Rockford. They both need help in language arts, but in different areas. That first week, it was just like small little activities. And I picked up one of them really struggles with spelling. So their fluency level is super low because they don't understand how to spell the word, let alone what it means. And then another one, he's like right at grade level and his needs are more so like attention and comprehension. Plenty of students are in that position still trying to find their footing in school after a pandemic upended education. And the tutoring initiative is ramping up this fall. Hundreds of tutors are working with students from third to eighth grade across the state. Swan is a senior at Northern Illinois University who will be a middle school teacher next year and is a tutor in Illinois Region 2 of the initiative. It runs out of NIU and stretches from Starve Rock all the way up to the Wisconsin border. NIU's one of several universities acting as tutoring hubs for the federal COVID relief funded project. Amanda Baum is the Region 2 program coordinator at NIU. She says 31 school districts in their region were identified as disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Baum says they looked at socioeconomic indicators like the percentage of students who qualify for free and reduced lunch, along with COVID data and attendance numbers. As of now, they're working with students in around 10 districts across northern Illinois. And they're still training more teachers and securing more schools through this fall and hope to be at full capacity by the spring. 
The federal funding expires in 2024, so there is a sense of urgency to get it up and running. They also have point people at each partner's school who collaborate with the student's teacher and can identify other kids at the school who might need tutoring. The state calls this sort of tutoring high impact, which some research has shown can help students improve in math and reading. High impact means a few things. For one, it has to be either one-on-one -on -one or in groups no bigger than three. It also has to be frequent. Swan meets with her students two to three times a week for at least an hour. Baum says that maybe the most essential part is relationship building. She says some people might think of tutors like short-order cooks. They show up, help the kid with his algebra homework, and get out. But, she explains, that's not how this approach works. They're doing interest inventories, finding out how they feel about certain types of activities. We have Jenga and Uno and just using all of those little tricks to just play for a little bit so that the tutor can get to know the student and the student can see, hey, tutoring's right. fun. I want to come back. She says, obviously, academic outcomes are important, but if high-impact tutoring can get a student to want to come to school every day and feel confident to re-engage in class, that's huge in its own right. Their tutors spend time getting to know kids and, in many cases, will spend the entire year working on targeted goals related to where they're having trouble. They do periodic assessments to make sure they're actually making progress, and after each session, both the tutor and student fill out a little form on how they feel the session went. Swan says that she starts off every session with a game to get students engaged and having fun. She's partial to this or that, where she presents a silly question like, would you rather fly or have magic powers? And then the students and the tutor have to defend their position. The girl I tutored was like, obviously I'd rather have magic powers because then I could just have the power to fly as well. And I was like, you got me on that. Swan's a future teacher who has already spent time working in classrooms and building lesson plans, which makes her an ideal candidate for the tutoring initiative, although plenty of other tutors are current teachers, retired teachers, or community members. She says she does work with students on their in-class assignments, but she also spends a lot of time building individual lesson plans to home in on the areas where her kids struggle. The majority of the time that we spend together, I make the material, we sit down, and they're learning a new concept, and I'm teaching them not only fluency and comprehension, but I'm also teaching them test-taking strategies. It's only been a few weeks, so it's hard to say if they're already making gains, but she says she feels like she knows exactly where she needs to target lessons. Illinois State Superintendent Carmen Ayala is also confident in the program. She directly called out the tutoring initiative recently as a big reason student growth scores could continue improving. And one of the other added benefits of the program, as mentioned, many tutors like Swan are future educators, and the experience gives them more tools they can use to help students once they're in charge of classrooms. And enrollment fell really hard at most community colleges during the pandemic. And at schools like Wabanzi Community College, it's starting to come back up. But one of their programs roared back. Enrollments in adult education more than doubled this fall. And I'm here to tell you more about what adult education even is and why the demand for it is so high. Winnie wants to be a nurse. It's been her dream since way before she moved to the U.S. from her home country of Cameroon last year. Cameroon's a nation in West Central Africa, just south of Nigeria. And she joined her husband in a new country with a new language she didn't speak. And on top of all of that, she was pregnant and had complications. So my pregnancy was not easy. So my baby has three months now. And I said I can begin to study English now. 
Winnie, like a majority of people from Cameroon, primarily speak French. And if she wants to be a nurse here in the U.S., she's probably going to need to speak English. That's why she enrolled in the free adult education program at Obanzi Community College. She's been in this English conversation class for only three weeks. A long conversation is not easy for me. I try, but, but I'm here to learn. She studied English a little bit in school, but after only studying here for a few weeks, her English is getting better really quickly. Wabanzi's adult education program consists of two distinct services, high school equivalency or, for someone like Winnie, English language acquisition. Adam Schauer is the dean for adult and workforce education who heads up the program. He says they're already about to surpass numbers from last year. We're currently serving 1,087 students before we're even halfway through the fiscal year. And so that number should exceed pre-COVID numbers by quite a bit. Nearly 75% of their students are looking for English language training. And Shower says they serve students speaking more than 45 native languages. They have young students and older folks who are lawyers, doctors, even a former university president. At the end of the day, he sees the programs as workforce development. People like Winnie come to get their high school equivalency or improve their English skills so they can get better workforce opportunities. And he thinks there are a few reasons for the recent enrollment rebounds. One is pent-up demand from the pandemic. School schedules have normalized and parents can re-engage their education. The individuals that are here that are pursuing their high school equivalency with us and completing their GED, their children are now 75% more likely to graduate from high school. Shower says they want to make it easier for adults, so that means offering plenty of night classes and sometimes on-site courses with community business partners. They're getting paid to be there by the employer. They're learning English in their workplace during their work hours. They're building a strong workforce, and the student now has more work-life balance. Many of the students have families, and the program requires them to be in class for six hours a week, with some of them taking 12 hours worth of classes. When they enter the program, students take a placement test so they know which areas they need help in. For high school equivalency, maybe they need more science and math and will get placed in those classes. The courses usually run for eight weeks and then they reevaluate. One of the other reasons for the enrollment boost? They're seeing a large influx of refugees from places like Myanmar and Ukraine. Shower says they've been working closely with local resettlement groups to assist those students. And just before the pandemic, Wabanzi rebuilt their adult education curriculum. And a big part of that was the need for digital literacy and civics. We've embedded civics components across the board to gain better understanding of what is a rental agreement, insurance, accessing health care. Back in the English language conversation class, students are working on a group project. Angel from Venezuela is confused about the word choir. Why is it pronounced like that? Shouldn't there be a W or something if you're going to say it like that? It's a fair point, and he talks about it with his classmates who are from Mexico, Ukraine, and Bolivia. Fabian just moved to Illinois from Bolivia a few months ago. He's 19 and hopes one day to direct movies. He loves surreal science fiction films. And this class has been really helpful for him, not just to learn English to help his education and his volunteer work, but to connect with people from across the globe. You can meet, meet up with other persons from other countries, mm -hmm. not just your country, not just uh, here, if not from Africa, from France, from many countries. So it's, it's a place where you can uh, meet with other persons, with other cultures. The program is free for students, and it's funded by a state grant from the Illinois Community College Board. Shower says funding has been pretty flat for the past few years, but with adult education and workforce training in such high demand, he hopes they get the opportunity to expand.
All right, now it's time for my conversation with middle school social studies teacher David Gray. And we start off by chatting a little bit about how middle schoolers still kind of get a little bit of a bad rap. I was curious, like, what do you find to be, like, the biggest misconception that people have about middle schoolers? I mean, there, it is a tough age, you know, I think right. that's accurate. I think the biggest thing is I think a lot of adults are scared of middle schoolers. There's yeah, a why? fear. There's a fear of them. But, uh, you know, it's it's just a funny age because in some ways they're still kids and in some ways they're, they're, they're verging on adulthood. And um, from one moment to the next, you can be having a very adult conversation with them and then the next moment they're doing something that is very childish. So it's kind of like, it's a, it's a juggling act in a way. So um, like that, it being like a very like transitory period for kids that it's like kind of just makes it more unpredictable of how they're going to act. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. And I think the challenge then for anybody who's teaching them is um, you almost have to live in both worlds at times. And cause, and part of it too, isn't, is this, is individual kids are kind of, going through that transition and being in both places. And then you have, you can have one person, one student who's, who's very mature and, you know, very ready for the next step. And then you have another student in the same classroom who is very much still working on being, coming out of childhood. So it's, um, I think that's, that's the biggest challenge. It's not, they're not scary. I think, you know, it's been good because I found a spot where I fit and works for who I am. And, you know, I'm glad we have teachers that teach the younger kids because I don't know that I would have the skill set and the demeanor to do that. So, yeah, no, so you see social studies. And I was thinking about like my own, you know, middle school experience, which I always have to remind myself, like, wasn't that long ago. You know, like I was in middle school like 15 years ago or something like that, which is a while, but like in the grand scheme of things, isn't that long ago. But I think about like with technology and things like that, how vastly different things are in like the social media age. Like there was no Instagram, there was no TikTok or Twitter when I was in middle school. And I was thinking about like, if, do you feel like in kind of the social media age, middle schoolers kind of come into your classes a little bit more aware of you know politics or news or are they just kind of using social media like me to like you know watch fun cooking videos and sports highlights well i feel like there are more kids that are a little tuned in the you know political news stories and but that i think that is still more if their parents are you know right. if, if their parents are tuned into it at home then they tend to be more tuned into it Mostly, I think they're using it for the the entertainment side, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always, even from the beginning of my career, which started what about 15, 16 years ago, there's always been a few kids in every group that are really into the politics, and the, you know, they they enjoy those conversations and even thrive on trying to create debates and stuff, which you know can be a double edged sword, but. Um, but I don't, I don't know that there's very many more than used to be. That's interesting. It makes sense, though, that like you said, that it's kind of like in the same way that it was in the past. If their parents were into it, they're going to be into it. It's just kind of the media that's, that's changed right. and how they access that information. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I was, I was thinking about a lot with this and, and the, one of the first things I, I found when I was kind of trying to research for the interview was the – the four freedoms and beyond project that you guys do. Yes. 
And I was curious, uh, before we get into it and kind of like explain to people, uh, like again, for people that like aren't familiar with the four freedoms or anything like that, but before we dive into the actual, like the project and what you guys do, can you explain a little bit about like, just like what the four freedoms are? Yeah, so, um, so before the US entered World War II, um, Franklin Roosevelt basically made a speech. Um, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was his inaugural, so inaugural speech or it was the State of the Union. I think uh, I saw State of the Union. Yeah, so that it must have been the 1940 State of the Union address. Um, no, 41 State of the Union address. And in it, he, he basically laid out that if the United States were to be drawn into the war, this is the things we'd be fighting for, which were the four freedoms, which um, were freedom from fear, freedom from want, uh, freedom of religion and freedom of expression or speech. Um, basically, he was saying that if the United States is a part of this war, our goal will be to try and secure those freedoms for everybody in the world. Um, and it's quite lofty, of course. Um, but it's, uh, I think it was his way of stating a purpose. Yeah, and then Norman Rockwell ended up, I believe, getting commissioned or working on, on four paintings to kind of illustrate those four freedoms and i think that like the probably the sale of them went for like war bonds and like put on stamps and things like that right it, yeah so so um rockwell became part of the, you know the whole propaganda campaign to right to to support the war effort and um and um yeah so and and i i personally like rockwell's aesthetic mm -hmm. um i mean it does it's kind of you know that classic americana look um, right. So I, I enjoy looking at his artwork. Um, right. So, so like those, it's, it's interesting. Cause I had never, until I started looking into this, I had never heard of this speech. I had never heard of the four freedoms and like the part of it that I thought was especially fascinating, right. Is, is the, the two that are a little bit more lofty, the two that are a little bit more like aspirational, like, you know, the, the freedom from fear and freedom a freedom from want, right? And like, I, I was thinking about it because it's like, you know, the first two, freedom of speech, freedom of worship or religion, like we know those two, First Amendment, right up there, things that we talk about all the time. And that like, you know, I think that, it, that pretty much everyone in America would kind of say that they, or agree that they have those rights to some degree. But the other two, again, are like a little bit more vague, a little bit up to interpretation and a little bit aspirational from like, 1941 standards but also in in 2022 i think that's it's so fascinating and then again with based on the projects that, that you guys are doing which in part was around you know your students creating illustrations around those four freedoms that i would imagine that it was probably a little bit more difficult for them to come up with ideas of how to represent you know freedom from wants and freedom from fear than it would be you know freedom of speech you can you know throw some tape over someone's mouth right yeah. So when we, yeah, when we did it last year, I allowed the students to pick which of the freedoms they wanted to illustrate. And we had uh, definitely a lot more do religion and, and, and speech again, because they, it's easier to wrap your mind around. In fact, I think, I think we only had one student in all of my students who did freedom from want. What did they draw or, or illustrate? even remember it's been right. Cause in the Rockwell been, yeah. painting, the Rockwell painting freedom from want is, 
a picture of like a family sitting down to dinner and like putting like a big turkey on the table or something. And, you know, freedom from freedom of speech is a guy standing up at like a town hall meeting. Um, freedom of uh, of you know religion or worship is, I believe, like a nun with a rosary and kind of a congregation or something to that effect. Yeah, it was like three three or four faces sort of in profile, and I think one of them was holding a a Bible toward the front. Right. Yeah, and and freedom from fear is like two parents talking in their kids, and yeah, I I, I was fascinating about like the ones from either you know from once or from fear that you thought were like especially interesting that the students that chose to to try to figure those ones out went with yeah i i yeah man i i i guess i wish i would have re reviewed these and looked at these again but um i haven't i, I can haven't tell you the one that stood out awesome. to me i can tell you one that i that i saw that i thought was and i it, this one seems like kind of it exactly kind of hit the nail on the head when i was thinking about because again it's like it is kind of lofty it is kind of vague of how you interpret it and the one that I saw the student did was like a kid standing out in front of their school, right? And with a backpack on and the school's right in front of them. And you could see on the door of the school, a little sign that has a gun on it. And then kind of an X through that, which obviously everyone, you know, that's a picture, you know, is worth a thousand words. Everyone understands exactly what that means when you put that on there. And I was like, that is, that's, you know, heartbreaking, obviously, but exactly what they were trying to encapsulate with that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I'm sure in 1941, 42, when Rockwell made the paintings, he had no conception of of school shootings and um, and kids having to worry about that, and certainly not in the United States. So, right. So it's it's interesting to to modernize it of what what people are going to to depict for that because, like again, I like I think that in a lot of ways, the first two, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of of, of religion or of worship, probably those paintings and what someone would paint now would probably look pretty similar too. Yeah, because again, I think those those concepts are a little more concrete. And of course, you know, between one person and the next, what they're afraid of could change. It could be different. You know? Right, but like so much of it, you know, I think you can think about so much in American culture and like in modern American politics through the lens of you know, fear and want. And like, it is really, really fascinating to look at how things have changed. And yeah. it's, I was really fascinated by that. Yeah. And it, yeah, it was interesting to see. I mean, a lot of the kids, you know, I told them, go ahead and look at, because this, the idea of reinterpreting the four freedoms or re, you know, redoing Rockwell is, is pretty common, actually, if you, if you, if you look it up. So I had the kids go ahead and Google search and see what you can find to see if you can't generate some ideas. Well, a lot of them, pretty much took those ideas and, and they became their own ideas. Um, but a few of them, you know, kind of really made their own idea and concept. Um, and those were, those were pretty interesting to see. And again, to me, I think the, the freedom from um, fear ones were among the most interesting because it really was more of a look inside each student in a way that the, the other ones weren't. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You said it's, it's kind of reimagining Rockwell or revisiting Rockwell is something that, that's pretty common. What was it that drew you specifically to this project? Well, actually, it was uh, it was the organization Midwest Partners in town that was um, that was doing a community project with uh, with the artist Maggie Miners, 
who who did a who did a Rockwell study um, with f- photography, um, and if you get a chance to look at her her interpretations, those are also interesting and, and generate some pretty good conversation. Um, and I was kind of approached to see if there's any 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 way we could connect this to stuff we're doing in class. And I we used to do. Um, with our World War II studies, our World War studies, we used to do just propaganda posters. I'd have them just kind of recreate wartime propaganda posters. And I said, well, we can we can kind of switch gears a little bit and focus on the freedoms, um, which was good because it, it generated some good conversation uh, about the four freedoms and, and um, you know, America's purpose in the war. And um, so that's kind of how I got into it, um, just to kind of connect with the community project at large. Um, and, um, I think it was a good, it was a good study. I think the kids valued it. Um, and like, you know, you saw some of the artwork and we got some pretty good pieces. So, yeah. And there was some larger, like you said that this was some other community groups were, were a part of this too, that there was some other, you know, community-based events that were a part of the whole series too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I went, I didn't, I didn't go to all of them, but, uh, I went to a couple of the discussions, um, and most of those those discussions were really generated and centered around uh, Maggie Miner's work. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the same themes that we had in class about, um, you know, what, what does this mean? Uh, you know, these, are these goals even accomplishable? Um, you know, I think one of the, one of the early questions I asked is, um, you know, we won the war, but did we, did we secure these, these freedoms? And, and then we even talked about, you know, Roosevelt was talking about around the world. Have we even secured these freedoms here in the States effectively? Um, and that generated some pretty interesting conversation from their viewpoint about um, where we were uh, as a country and where we were, you know, as a world with, with, you know, freedom in general, but specifically to these four as well. Yeah. Again, you're right. Like, like I was saying at the top, like I think a lot of people think about, freedom of speech and freedom of religion as kind of givens, as things that, in, at least in this country, that we have secured, again, to some degree or another, people would say that. But then the other two, again, it's like, it almost says, and I'm, I'm at the time, obviously, all of this was looking forward, all of it was like, these, this is our goal for the future. But that's kind of what it, it, it feels like even more so at that point, right, is it's like, it, it kind of talks less about who you know, we are and like what the constitution says versus like the other two with freedom from wants and freedom from fear are more about like aspirational and like, who is it that we want to be in the future? And right, like from the lens of 1941 and World War II, that's fascinating. But then to kind of think about it, okay, okay we're in 2022. What it, What's happened in the last, you know, 80 to 90 years? Have we made any progress on those things? And, and how has, you know, that fear changed? Is is really fascinating, and I, I bet there were some interesting conversations, not only in your class, but in the kind of community about that. Yeah, and I, I'm grateful that I was kind of brought on board because um, because of those conversations. Um, you know, one thing about teaching is you learn a lot too while you're doing it, and I think this this project helped helped me um, not only make the thought process myself. You know, where are we? But kind of. Again, it was kind of a lens into where they they felt we were at. The students felt we were at with these things. What did, and, was there anything? Do you remember how how they were feeling? 
Um, I think in a lot of ways they felt like we we come up short, um, especially with the freedom from fear. I mean, school shootings did become part of our conversations, and um, of course, the idea that we're doing you know every year we're doing lockdown drills and talking about well, what if somebody comes in to try and do harm? And, um, you know, I when I was in school, I remember Columbine happening, um, but uh, even after that, I never I never really thought about what happens in the school day if somebody comes into the building to do harm. And I feel like these kids are forced to, to reflect on that at times. And, um, how, you know, how could it not affect them? For sure. Again, like I was saying, doesn't feel like I was that long ago that I was in middle school and it was kind of an interesting point. Cause it was, you know, in the late two thousands ish where Columbine was far enough in the rear view mirror where it wasn't a you know huge topic of conversation on people's minds all the time. But then I remember being in, in high school when Sandy Hook happened. And then that's when I viscerally remember all the lockdown things starting, all those drills really becoming a part of the school day. And I think about like, okay, in middle school before that happened, how I would have interpreted you know freedom from fear. I have, I have no idea. It's hard to even take myself back to that point in my life at that point in middle school of, of how I would have thought about freedom from fear and what that would have looked like for me. I, you know, when I'm thinking about my growing up, I, um, I think the thing, and this is, this might be weird. The thing I was most afraid of existentially was, was nuclear war. Cause I was, yeah, I, I was old enough to kind of consciously remember the end of the Cold War. And of course, a lot of the movies that were popular at the time were centered around the Cold War. Um, so kind of the the idea of nuclear war was was probably, school shootings did not, was not something that, that was a big part of my mind, even though I was aware of them. I think Columbine happened when I was a junior in high school, maybe. So... Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's hard to think about it, too, because it's like I probably something, you know, either nuclear war or some kind of maybe some kind of natural disaster I would have thought about or something like that. Because it's like that was obviously during the peak of, you know, the Iraq war and, and the war in the Middle East. But it's like uh, that was something at least when you're, you know, in middle school and not someone that's that's watching you know television news every day or something that it wasn't on the top of the conversation and it felt distant in 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 some kind of way. So yeah, I'm it probably maybe mine would have been some kind of nuclear related fear too, or just you know living in Illinois a tornado or something. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I saw that there was there was kind of a local history connection that you guys found to the four freedoms too, right? So yeah, so our school, uh, Logan Junior High School in Princeton, um, all the way back in I think the fifties would would sell the Saturday Evening Post um, as a fundraiser. And as, uh, not just the Saturday Evening Post, but the publishing company, I can't remember what the publishing company, they sold magazines as a fundraiser. And as a reward, if you met certain sales goals, they gave these plaques. Well, I guess over the course of two or three years, um, Logan Junior High earned all four of the plaques. Um, and I didn't even realize it. And one day I'm walking through the hallway and I kind of look over and I'm like, those plaques look like Rockwell's paintings. So I took a little closer look. Um, and then uh, my wife who was, who was working for Midwest Partners on their end of the project, 
I kind of showed her the plaques and then she kind of dug in and did the research about where they came from. And so that was kind of a, a serendipitous um, thing because I could I walk by those plaques every day. I say and it wasn't like you had to dig them out of the basement or something like they were already hung up. Yeah, they're hung on the on the wall by one of the drinking fountains. And I was like, <laughs> holy cow. So I took a picture of them with my phone and sent them to to to, to my wife. I said, do these look familiar or something like that? And um, so that led us to, to I think, um, even an even greater connection, which was um, which was kind of neat. Sometimes those those things happen. Yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty surreal moment as you're you know, walking down the hallway. <laughs> yeah. Again, especially since I've walked by him, you know, every day for the last 13 years. And I, I don't remember ever paying much attention to him before. But then. Then that moment happened. Yeah, I, I think I saw it too on, on the website that talks about the project. It must have been in, in the research that your wife found that you guys found about, you know, how the school, you know, students were doing the fundraiser back in the day. And this is like probably like in the early 1950s or something like that. Something like, I think it was the 50s. Yeah, 50s. Um, I think it was like over two or three years. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I saw that like, yeah, it's like every year they earned a different one. And the thing I thought was funny too is that like, the first year that they won, like the first two that they give out are like, they start you off with the freedom of speech plaque and they start you off with the, the freedom of religion one next. It's like, you have to get three or four years deep before they get the, the, the more, you know, interesting that the freedom from want and the fear ones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it a project that you guys are, are thinking about continuing in some form or, or are you guys going to pivot and, and find a, Find something I think, new for, for that I think we can. I think we'll continue it in some form yeah. because um, I think highlighting the four freedom speech again, it's 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 abstract in a way and it's idealistic in a way, um, but it really speaks to the question of you know who we are as a country, what what do we want to be as a country. It allows for those deep conversations, and I think in a way that's. Um, that's uh, kind of safe um, because it's not really, it's not really politically controversial, I think. Um, right, because so much as it is, is up to how you interpret those ideals. Right. Um, and I think it allows us to evaluate um, the values of our country in a way, um, whether we're living up to our stated values. Um, it, it just allows for a lot of conversations around uh, the speech, the artwork, um, and the, the values, again, the values around it. So, Yeah, and it's like people talk all the time about just general, I, even though like these ideas are, are a little bit more personal and up to your interpretation. Like so often in this country when we talk about freedom, we leave it at that, just, you know, freedom. And like that is so vague to the point where it kind of almost means nothing when we talk about it. But yeah. like at least the framing devices of, you know, speech or especially those last two, right? Like from fear and of want allow you a lens into that conversation in a way that I think people don't, necessarily talk about all the time when they talk about just this general idea of do we have freedom right in in what level of freedom do we enjoy i can i can um i can say what i want right i have the freedom and the ability to say what i want you know within certain um boundaries but um if i'm afraid to go to school because of 
X, Y, and Z, what level of freedom am I actually enjoying? You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And um so yeah, so you said that you've been you've been in Princeton for 13, 14 years or so? Yeah. Uh I started I started my career nearby in Depew um and taught there for three years. And then I um was fortunate to get the job here in Princeton. Um it's my hometown and my wife and I already are, we're already living here. So it's kind of nice to work about six blocks from where you live. So Oh, so you, you grew up in Princeton? Do you like went to school there too? Yep. Yeah, I um born and raised here and graduated high school here and um the classroom I teach in now I had seventh grade social studies in, so Oh man, what was what was that feeling when you when you first went back? Uh it was it was surreal because a lot of the, the teachers that were my teachers in, in junior high were still were still teaching. They were kinda of on the tail ends of their career, but um, I get to call him by the first name now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was funny because I, I had one teacher who I called by his last name and he kind of chuckled at me, and, you know, indicated it's okay to call me by my first name, but it was still kind of weird for a little bit. Um, but by the end of it, you know, you, you feel more like a colleague than a, than a student after a couple of years, which um, it was really, it was really great to get to see them sort of on a, on a different level and get to know them on a different level um yeah yeah for sure in many ways because i was still early in my career they were still teaching me but it was teaching me how to be a professional and how to be a teacher and um i absolutely value value that time and in a lot of ways i miss i miss those teachers that have retired and uh, are no longer teaching with us but have you had the point where has has it full circled yet? Have you had any any students that you had fifteen years ago come back around as a, as a colleague? Uh, we've had some um, paraprofessionals uh, or classroom aides that I taught. Right. Um, we had um, one of my colleagues had a student teacher that I taught when she was in junior high, um, and now I think she's got a job up in the suburbs, which is it's pretty cool to see that. Um, it's, it's cool to see them grow up because there's a lot of changes between 13, 14 years old and, um, you know, early 20s. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of a neat aspect of it. Right, for sure. Yeah, it's like I, I feel like some teacher I, I talked to a, a while back put it where it's like because I think that he, he was the same thing where uh, a student, that, the former student that he had, ended up working with him as a colleague later on currently and was like, yeah, as a teacher – 98% of the time, you know, you plant these seeds and you nurture them and then you send them off into the next year. And a lot of times you kind of never hear from it ever again. So it's, it is really cool when you do get the opportunity to see how everything turned out and see the kind of person that they became. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it is, it's what, to me, it's one of the more rewarding aspects of, of, of education is when you hear stories of students that are being successful and, um, and, and, you know, making it in life, if you want to put it that way, it's, 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 it's rewarding. Um, even if you, even if you're just telling yourself you are one small part of that, it's still, um, and it, you know, it's especially rewarding to see a student who struggled in, in, in the years they were with us to, to grow and, and turn out, um, not only okay, but to be, you know, really making it in life. It's, it's, I enjoy that part. Yeah. Was being a teacher something that you 
always wanted to do, you know, from back when you were in school or was it something that came to you a little bit later on? Uh, well, no, um, I wasn't always thinking of being a teacher, although when I reflect about it, I, I probably should have because, um, well, I always, I always enjoyed being in a leadership role and I always enjoyed, um, mentoring younger, uh, younger people. Um, mostly that was through athletics when I was in school, but, um, no, when I went to school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I liked history and I wanted to study history. So I, I went to be a history major and then I'm like, okay, so what can I do with a history major? And education was, was one of the most common things to do with history. So that's kind of the path I went down and it's the way it's worked out, I guess. So, yeah. Once you kind of in college, you kind of dipped your toe into education and thought like, maybe this is something that could work for me. Was it instantaneous that you were like, oh, this is a great fit or, or did that take a little bit of time too? Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I realized uh, that it was it was gonna fit or work. Um, right. Really, until I think I did my student teaching. Um, you know, you, you get you get you you do your undergraduate education courses, and you you talk a lot of educational philosophy, and hear the you know the philosophers' names, and go over things like Bloom's taxonomy, and you <laughs> yeah, know, of course. and even talk in, in in psychology classes. You know, you know all those psychology studies about human behavior and so you do a lot of that um but you, you really your your experience in a classroom and actually standing in front of kids really is limited until you do your student teaching um and that's really i think that's really where you find out whether it's going to work or fit or not um i don't th i don't know any other way to do it if if i'm being honest other than there's a little trial by fire you have to you have to step into the fire to see if you can if you if you can stand it or if it fits. I think that's the case for for so many things too, though, mm -hmm. right? Like I remember for for me in journalism, it was like I I spent two years at a community college, not really knowing what I wanted to do, and then it was like, okay, I know I can write, I know I'm I'm pretty interested in politics, I know I'm kind of interested in these things. Then like you know, once you transfer, you're like, okay, well, it's, you're junior, it's time to declare a major now. And I just kind of had like a best guess. And then like, you know, luckily once you like finally get into those classes and, and get to do some, you know, student media related stuff. And like you said, like once you actually do the work, there's kind of like a sigh of relief where you're like, oh, thank God, I was, I was right. That did end, that this is what I want to do. But yeah. until you get to that sink or swim moment, there's always a party that's like, hope I guessed right on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, I think that was kind of it. When I got the student teaching, um, it was, it was, yeah, there's going to be challenges, but I enjoy what I'm, I'm, I'm going to enjoy what I'm doing and I'm going to feel like I have a purpose, um, every day. So it was, it was, um, I don't know if it was a single moment, like aha moment, but it, right, over, yeah. that, over that semester of doing that, um, it was definitely the realization that this is what, this is what I was sort of called to do. So, right. You know, I mentioned that you got nominated to be on our show. Someone reached out and said, you got to talk to David. And, you know, every educator that we have on is, and I'm, I'm sure that's, that you had a teacher or, or a coach or, or someone at, point, at some point in your education journey that you feel like kind of just made a big impact on you, helped you become the person that you are today. So I'm curious, like when we say that, who's, are, is there anyone particularly that comes into mind or a few people? Well, I, I can say that I um, I feel like overall I had great teachers. Um, yeah. You know, I think 
I, I would like to think that they all they all played a role, but there are um, there are uh, there's one that I think probably stands out, and that's um, Mrs. McVitie, Elaine McVitie, um, and she's she's pretty legendary in these parts because I think she's had a, a huge impact on a lot of students. Um, but I think you know I've, I've always had an interest in history, like I said, um, and she was my my history teacher in high school. But just to see, I think just to witness the the amount of fun she had and the passion she had for um, teaching and learning and um, and and she encouraged my growth. Um, and uh, I think she would probably be the one that probably had the biggest impact um, on making, you know, encur encouraging me or, or sort of making me want to be a teacher. So, and she taught yeah. history. Yes. Yeah. I'm I sure. Had her, and, and I think I took. I think I took her class. I think I had a class of hers every year of my four years of high school too. And I, I almost purposely said I need a McVitie class this year, so I'm gonna make sure I get one. I'm sure she she's inspired a, a few history and social studies teachers over the years. She did. I've even heard a couple other um, a couple other people who went into education who who mentioned her as as part of their inspiration. So was she. Was she retired from the district by the time that, that you got there, or did you get a little McVitie crossover by the time that you got back? So yeah, she was she was still teaching in in, um, in the high school when I got back, and um, even then, right, I, she is always a teacher. Every time every time I met with her, um, she was always imparting some lesson or wisdom, whether it was about something historic or um, obviously when I started teaching, it was there was a lot more advice or, or um, teaching me about, you know, how to, how to do certain lessons or how to, you know, handle certain situations or, um, so it became more about, you know, teaching me about teaching, which was, um, which was pretty cool. I, uh, I value all of those conversations. So. Yeah, that's awesome. You mentioned that like athletics was, was a big part of it for you too. And, and you're a coach now, right? Correct. I um I coached the soccer programs, both the girls and boys soccer programs at the high school. Oh, both. So that's cool too, because like you get to you get to again like the kids that you had in middle school, you kind of get to to follow them over and have them again. Yeah, it's um, yeah, and I I would say it's you know the relationship I build with the soccer players is pretty special. Um, obviously, you get to know them as as uh, seventh eighth grade junior high students, and then you're with them quite a bit over the next four years um, and watch them become really become adults. Um, and they, they do, I mean, there's a big difference between a freshman in high school and a senior in high school. And, um, and to, to sort of see that in a way they like you use the term full circle in a way they sort of come full circle um, and grow up. And um, again, it's rewarding to see that. Uh, that grow. Obviously, our conversations are different um, at the soccer program than when when we're in a, a history class. But um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a good time. I enjoy it. And the girls just today they they won uh, like a regional championship last year, right? Yeah, we won a regional last year, and then uh, we actually won the sectional two years ago. So hopefully, we can um, stay competitive and. You know, our goals, I think, uh, are the same. There you go. Shout out to the Tigers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I've only got a, a few more for you, and then I'll let you go. But, hey, thanks again for, for taking some time out of the afternoon. No problem.
Yeah. Oh, I mean, the last the last few questions we had are ask are kind of the ones that we ask at the end of all of our interviews, and you might have interviewed or answered it throughout the course of our conversation. I just kind of like the way that these frame things to to kind of wrap up, which is like I'll ask it for you know specifically for social studies and history, and then I'll ask it for just teaching and coaching in general. But you know, what's something about about teaching? social studies that you just wish more people knew something that you think is is more important than, than people might realize um well i mean people people you know the famous saying those who don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it um i think that's kind of a simplification of of what really happens um i have a friend of mine that that i spend quite a bit of time with and have a lot of conversations with. He says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, and I think that's because human behavior stays mostly the same over time. So I think you can learn um, patterns of behavior from history, patterns of group behavior from history, um, that certainly those lessons can be applied to how we handle situations presently. Yeah, I mean, even if you think about like you know the freedom from want, the freedom from fear from 1941 to now, fear is still there, just might look a little bit different, just kind of rhymes a little bit. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, I think I think if you just think history repeats itself, then you look for it to actually repeat itself. And but if you think of it more as as um, as it's similar it's not the same, then you can see the patterns of behavior. And I think some outcomes do become predictable. Um, and I think people who can, who have that knowledge and ability can sort of not predict the future, but certainly um, have a good idea of what might come next. Yeah. So. And then what's something about being a teacher, being an educator, being a coach, all those things that you wish more people knew about and, and think is maybe a little bit more important than, than people outside of those fields might realize? Well, I think right now um, the kids are all right, you know. Oh, good. I think there's, <laughs> yeah. there's um, you know, five or ten years ago when people said kids are different today, I would argue with them. Um, now I, it's, it's, I would have to say it's actually true. Um, they're growing up in a different world than than I did, certainly, um, with with uh, the access to information. They're online so much. Um, they they are different, but um, just because it, they're different doesn't mean they're not they're not going to be okay. You know, um, certainly, it's never going to be perfect, right? We're not we're not going to, you know, we're not going to build a perfect world, but um, the future is going to be okay. You know, there's, um, I think for the most part, kids want what we wanted, um, which is to, to find a successful adult life, um, to, to find and achieve some sort of happiness. So uh, although, although things are different and we're still trying to navigate, I think, a new world, you know, the future's okay. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to Teacher's Lounge. As always, please feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like David. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. Or if you're here in the podcast, please do subscribe, share, leave us a rating, anything that you can do. It really is the best way to help us get even more perspectives on the show. Please do subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups 
for the amazing music you hear each and every episode of this show. You can find more of their music on SoundCloud and their appearance on WNIJ's own Sessions from Studio A show. A big thank you to Spencer Tripp for creating our Teacher's Lounge logo. And I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.